Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Later on, we'll catch up on the final day of the veto session in Springfield, and it looks like Mayor Lightfoot's job down there just got a little tougher. House Speaker Michael Madigan has taken himself out of the uh, negotiations for this. So right there, you lose a lot of organizational authority and muscle. But first, after 16 years, the Spanish-language newspaper OI is shutting down. Tribune Publishing, the parent company of the Chicago Tribune, announced it'll be pulling the plug next month. It comes at a time when about a third of the residents of Chicago identify as Latinx or Hispanic. Trip Pub, as the parent company is sometimes called, didn't give a specific reason for the decision and declined to respond to questions from Reset producers. Well, we wanted to talk about the impact and the legacy of OI. So around the table with me are two current staffers. We have managing editor Octavio Lopez and multimedia journalist Laura Rodriguez. Also with us is Fernando Diaz, editor and publisher of the Chicago Reporter and former managing editor of OI from 2010 to 2014. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you. having us. So Octavio and Laura, I want to come to you first. What was your reaction when you heard this news and how did you hear the news? We had a meeting on Tuesday and so we were told personally. Uh, my reaction, I was extremely surprised. It's not a surprise that print has been in decline overall in you know the states, but uh, eliminating the whole Spanish section was extremely hard to hear and unbelievable almost because, like you mentioned, a significant amount of the population here in Chicago is uh, Latino and a lot of them are Spanish speakers. And was any explanation given, Octavia? Uh, no, not really. And uh, We were not part of uh, the decision. Uh, we were just announced of the uh, steps that they were taking into oh, what is next for OI. And we will be publishing until December th- uh, 13. That will be the last, um, the last edition that we will have. But uh, there, there was not a, a, a real reason behind. I mean, everything at, at the end comes into a, a business decision. But why? We will not explain why. Laura, give us an understanding of how many people were talking about how the, the newspaper worked on a day-to-day basis. For the past, I want to say, two years, uh, we were operating in a very small newsroom. We were all doing a lot. We were, you know, I write, I take photos, I edit video, and we would also upload all of our stories to the website and do the social. It was really a very small newsroom. Uh, We had the entertainment editor, the sports editor, the local editor. I was the local reporter, and Octavio was the managing editor, and we had Edgar who was working with our website and now helping us to produce video and a lot of other things. Essentially, we all did a lot to mm. make sure that it was uh, alive. Uh, you know, the job of 10 journalists, I would say. Yeah, mm-hmm. Fernando, you, you no longer work at OI, but you mm-hmm. were there from 2010 to 2014. What was your reaction to the news? I knew this was coming. Uh, I didn't know that it was coming this week. So fast. Uh, yeah, <laughs> when I left in 2014, I knew that we needed a new model. OI as a product within the Tribune, I would say it died of acute long-term disinvestment. It was never truly invested in to evolve and adapt. At different stages in its life, we had live streaming, uh, we had relationships with broadcasters. When I was there, we were trying to find different outlets so that we could prolong um, what we knew was the inevitable decline of its core funding. And I think that's ultimately how we knew it was coming at some point. I just didn't imagine. It's also Q4. Um, so I imagine that now is when they're starting to tighten the belts for uh, 2020. Quarter four. Mm-hmm. Uh, Octavio, now that OI is going away, 
talk about the hole you think uh, that's being left in journalism in Chicago. I've been with the company for uh, 23 years, always working on the Spanish side. Before, all we used to be another weekly, Exito. So, so we have a lot of uh, roots in the community. And uh, uh, I think people really care about uh, the job that we uh, do at uh, OI. And obviously, uh, living in the community without a newspaper, it is a real setback. But I also have to be honest with you and, uh, and, and tell you that uh, in many instances, when you talk to some people and you tell them where, where you work, they were kind of uh, surprised that the people is still running. They mm. were like, oh, I didn't know that OI is still publishing. Do I think that Tripov need to do something in Spanish? I think so. And, and I'm not sure if that's going to be uh, something that they would like to explore for or for the near future. I hope they do. And uh, uh, that's my, my, my expectation, that they still consider that. And they, they, they will take us into consideration for that new plan. Mm-hmm. Laura, just help us understand a little bit more about OI's approach to covering Chicago Spanish-speaking communities and, and the audience you were surveying. I spent a lot of time in, in the you know, h- hanging out and talking to the Latino community beyond just focusing on their immigration status or their language. It was really showcasing who they are, their day-to-day stories, just their ordinary day stories that people think that are not important, but that, that really do show the essence and the identity of, of, of the Latino community, the Spanish-speaking community. You know, it's my my grandma, my mom, it's my tias. They don't speak English. They still try to find themselves anywhere they can. And I feel like a lot of the stories that we were doing were really kind of nostalgic. And they, they kept it and they reminded people of where they come from. And they made them feel, obviously, like they matter, right? There were very, there's very few... Faces, and we know that it's not a secret. Diversity is still not up there in any TV media, or especially mainstream. And I hate using that word, but we're not there. And I, I feel like that was what we were doing for them. We were uh, giving them that space to tell their stories beyond, and like we you know, we mentioned beyond stereotypes. Fernando, from your perspective, what does this mean for the news landscape in, in Chicago? As Octavio said, you know, there's a long history of Oi being here. I'm not trying to recall the images of Sam Zell as the, as the grave dancer, but I think uh, that this is actually an opportunity. I think, as I mentioned before, the disinvestment in Oi really wasn't doing justice to the community itself. And I think that I left Oi to come back and try to figure this out. Um, and so now I'm at the reporter. I think we might be breaking some news on your air. We've been working for a year uh, with Univision to create a new hybrid news organization, news team, uh, that would address a lot of the expanding news deserts that are Aurora, Joliet, Waukegan, Cicero, Berwyn. We just didn't expect that this was going to happen now. We were building. We were preparing for it. Uh, It's called the Latinext Project. Uh, You can find more information at latinext.media. A lot of the innovation that's happening in the nonprofit space needs to come to black and brown communities. We need more news leaders. We need more news editors. We need more news entrepreneurs. The need is there. Clearly, as Laura said, the population is there. It's just how do we serve them? And I agree with Octavio. We can't let the void be filled by noise. Um, We've got to find sustainable ways to create the kind of journalism our communities deserve. Octavio, I want to hear from you about some of your favorite stories from from the last year or work you think had a really big impact. Yeah, I have... um, Two in particular. One is uh, from the uh, back in the Exito days, 
and that uh, brought uh, at least some attention to an issue that is very important for the uh, immigrant community, especially those uh, living here undocumented. I remember the story of uh, Ana Esparza, uh, 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 a little girl who, who was in need of a liver transplant, but uh, her condition as an undocumented uh, disqualified her to be able to receive uh, that uh, uh, liver that she needed. Uh, thanks to a story that we wrote back then uh, by uh, Jorge Luis Mota, uh, we got that attention and she was able to secure that uh, transplant. That's the kind of stories that uh, uh, we always uh, are, are looking for. And the other one, it's the most recent one that uh, uh, Laura did. It is uh, about uh, uh, a lady from uh, Little Village who sells tamales to pay for uh, for college. I think th those stories uh, gives you an idea of, of, of uh, what the Latino community is, what the Latino community needs in terms of uh, information. I think that that's uh, part of the legacy that I always is going to be leaving behind. Laura, what about you? I have so many. <laughs> I, um, I started as an intern with OI shortly after college. And one of my favorite stories was uh, Guillermo Camarillos. He was uh, accepted to Stanford at the same time that his father was going through deportation. And uh, that story broke barriers. Uh, Red, I picked it up as a front page back then when they were also a daily. And it was super important to me because it was it showed me that, you know, these stories are just not for the Latino community. They're about the Latino community, but they go beyond, you know, age, gender, race, uh, whatever the, that story has, the, the sentiment, the meaning the impact goes beyond that. And that's probably one of my favorite stories because it was right at the beginning of my career, budding journalist, uh, and it, it really inspired me to keep doing what I love, which is tell their stories. Mm -hmm. You know, Fernando, as we talk about Chicago and its diversity and its richness, why is it important to have news sites that, you know, specifically tell these stories and connect to communities more deeply because it seems to me that it's not just a, it's not just about that community. Mm -hmm. It's about the city as a whole. Yeah, w one of the things that I tried to implement when I was at OI uh, as editor was, you know, ensuring that we didn't have just sort of what I called then brown news for brown people. There's any any given day three to five reporters at City Hall covering the stories, covering the mayor, covering the city council. Uh, there's another two or three covering the county. None of them are publishing in Spanish. So when you think about the fact that there's five stories coming out of the two largest government agencies in, you know, in, in sort of upstate, and none of that is being produced in Spanish, there's just a vacuum of understanding. So when you talk about parents like mine who came here for their kids to have a better life, how do they begin to understand the school district? How do they begin to understand property taxes? How do they begin to understand how to hold police accountable? How do they begin to engage in the democratic process? So I think the reason why it's important is because part of it is explaining who the community is to the other communities and sort of uh, addressing that linguistic and cultural isolation that's just natural when you're in a new place. The other is to ensure that everybody begins to understand each other. I remember when uh, we expanded the opinion section and we started publishing conservative opinions. And then we started publishing English opinions and I started to get pushback because people were like, these are not things that the Latino community like, will be into. And I'm like, this is the conversation that's happening. And if they're not aware 
of how people are viewing them or how they're being talked about or how they're being addressed, then they're going to be ignorant to a large part of reality from the, as Laura said, I don't like to use the term either, the mainstream audience. So it's important that these places exist because the Caramillos and the Anas can have an outlet can have a way of breaking through that noise. And that's why we have to ensure that just because OI is closing doesn't mean we're giving up. Mm. It means now we need to be that much stronger, that much more deliberate about how we create sustainable organizations to ensure that these communities are not ignored. Well, Fernando, we heard about the new project that you're launching, and we'd love to tweet on information about that at WBEZ Reset. But Laura and, and Octavio, what's next for you? Right now, I'm still uh, trying to process the news. You know, this is beyond me losing a job. It's about losing a platform that was essential for uh, a significant Chicago population. And um, I don't know exactly what I want to do yet, but I am committed to continue doing that, elevating the Spanish-speaking voices. You know, we're part of the society now, and, and... we deserve to be everywhere, not just in Spanish. Our stories need to deserve to be everywhere. Octavio? To be quite uh, frank, honest with you, uh, the company uh, has been generous enough to, to try to find another spot for us, uh, doing something else with, within the company. Probably uh, all six of us will, will take a, a serious look into what, what is available. And uh, I hope that uh, most of us will, will, will remain with the company. That's OI Managing Director Octavio Lopez, multimedia journalist Laura Rodriguez, and former managing editor Fernando Diaz. OI will publish its final edition on December 13th. Today marks the final day of the fall veto session in Springfield, and lawmakers still have a lot of ground to cover. Brian Mackey is a state government and politics reporter at WUIS NPR Illinois, and he joins us from the Illinois State House. Brian, welcome back to Reset. Hey, Jen, good to be back with you. So Mayor Lori Lightfoot was in Springfield Tuesday to meet with lawmakers about tweaking the tax rate for Chicago Casino. What can you tell us about that meeting? Yeah, you mentioned just a moment ago that this is the last day. Let's say we hope it's the last day <laughs> Fair for enough. us who have to cover this. Uh, that that She was here to talk, as you said, about the Chicago casino tax rates in particular for the Chicago casino. There was a study earlier this year that said that uh, the rates were so onerous that no private group was likely to step forward to actually manage the casino. So she has been negotiating, like you like you mentioned. She was here in person doing that. Lawmakers have been continuing behind closed doors, but as often happens with these big gambling pieces of legislation, a lot of other people come out uh, with their hands out, want a piece of the action. Do you have a sense of whether there's any momentum behind this, where lawmakers stand on the issue? Yeah, there's momentum. There was, uh, there have been reports that there was uh, some sort of agreement, sort of, uh, this morning, but people are still hammering out the details. There's uh, was talk of putting forth a number of amendments, one that's sort of the quote-unquote, clean version of the legislation the mayor would like to see, and then individual uh, other demands put up separately, and then let let those pass or fail on their own merits. Uh, there has been reporting as well that House Speaker Michael Madigan has taken himself out of the uh, negotiations for this. So right there, you lose a lot of organizational authority and muscle. Uh, you know, he can sort of help herd the cats down here, but if he's 
taking a sort of inactive approach on this particular legislation that makes it a lot harder to to get everybody uh, moving in the same direction. Do we know why? There was some reporting, and in the past he has said he had a conflict about uh, gambling legislation in particular. Lawmakers don't have to be much more detailed than that, although there was just a report this morning where he, uh, his, somebody in his camp actually said, no, that is not the case. He's just not really getting involved. So timing-wise, do we know whether or not there's enough momentum for this to, to get taken care of during the veto session? Inaction is always easier than action, but you never know. So uh, I guess the the short answer is tune in next week to find (laughs) out more. (laughs) Well, when we spoke on Tuesday, we talked about some potential changes to ethics law, and you said there were a number of proposals for an ethics overhaul. Any update on that? Yes. uh, This morning, uh, the House began advancing sort of a two-pronged approach. One of them would create a commission, right? When you when you don't have enough votes to actually do something substantive, you end up creating a commission. So th- there would be this commission, the governor, the House Speaker, the Senate President, Republicans would have appointees on this. There were some concerns raised by Republicans that it wasn't a perfectly evenly divided commission. Sometimes when there's something that's viewed as a, a, a problem that goes beyond partisan politics. What they do here is have a sort of a 50-50 commission, even though Democrats have significant majorities in the General Assembly. Uh, this one sort of tracks more with that that partisan breakdown as it exists. So the Democrats would get more people to put on this, but it would look at everything from lobbying to uh, the disclosure requirements of lawmakers about their finances. So that's that's one piece of what's being advanced. The other piece is an actual piece of ethics legislation. It would change the requirements. It would require the Secretary of State's office, which handles lobbyist registration, to create a new database that would try and consolidate uh, not just who lobbyists are working for, if they're working for, say, Commonwealth Edison, uh, just to pick a, an example out of the thin air. Uh, if You know, it would have to disclose that, but it would also have to disclose how those lobbyists uh, contribute to political campaign funds. Right now, there is a, you know, that, that is public information, but it's separate. You'd have to go figure out who are the lobbyists, then go over to the State Board of Elections website, look up there. This is a, the attempt here is to, to bring all that information together. It also would address a problem where, say, lobbyist Mackey could hire lobbyist White. You know, I, I disclose that I'm working for ComEd, and you just say you're working for me. And then you never know who you're really working for. So this would attempt to end run around that loophole as well, seal that up. And then finally, it would increase the financial disclosure requirements of state lawmakers. There was some concern it doesn't go as far as, say, state judges have to say about their finances, but it would be more than they have to say now. Well, I want to talk about a bill that failed to make it out of a Senate committee on Wednesday. Lawmakers were considering a ban on the cancer-causing gas, ethylene oxide. What happened? Yeah, it seems to have fallen apart. Uh, So this is uh, something that has been a very contentious issue for about a year now since a Chicago Tribune report about uh, higher incidences of cancer around a plant in Willowbrook called Sterigenics because of the use of this gas called ethylene oxide. It's used to sterilize medical equipment 
And uh, the people who live around there were uh, understandably quite concerned about this. There was legislation passed earlier this year meant to clamp down and uh, restrict the use of these gases. I think some people thought that legislation might be enough to force these companies to close. And when it came out that that wasn't the case, the governor and the attorney general's office were going to approve their reopening. There was more concern and a push for additional legislation. So the legislation that was being considered would have really limited the use of this ethylene oxide chemical to a very tiny amount. The effect of it is that most of these companies would thought to have to basically move to the middle of a a corn or a soybean field somewhere in order to operate. They would have to move away from population centers. Um, But there were, uh, there's concern from the business community and even from the hospitals themselves uh, who would have faced some restrictions here about you know their ability to operate as well as their ability to access sterilized medical equipment. Uh, so this is basically going to be put on hold until the, the spring legislative session. You know, that's the thing about these veto sessions is a lot of ideas coming in, but it's such a, a tight amount of time in order to get people uh, to negotiate and agree on things that, that some of these grand ideas often collapse. Well, I should Well, speaking of tight time, we've got to wrap up. But really quickly, what are you watching today? Well, today we're watching that ethics legislation and then the Chicago casino legislation. As uh, as I came down to talk to you, the House Democratic Caucus was having a, a closed-door meeting uh, debating this stuff. The House Republicans were doing the same. Word is there was some contention about the ethics bill in particular. And as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of contention about the uh, casino, the Chicago casino. So that is, that is the main thing. We're still sort of waiting to see whether it's going to happen. That insulin bill we've talked about this a couple of times. Uh, It would create a $100 cap on the price of insulin for people with insurance, a 30-day supply. That did pass both the House and the Senate and is now on its way to the governor's desk. All right. That's Brian Mackey of WUIS NPR Illinois. Brian, we'll check back in soon. Thanks. All right. Have a good day, Jim. And that's today's Reset. Come back tomorrow for more news stories you need to know and conversations with people you need to meet. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again soon.